Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SCP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Zach Darnell. Joining me again for another wonderful episode, Dave Matthew. Dave, how are you? I'm good, Zach. Well, my friend, you definitely love product management and the tools, techniques, practices, philosophies that go into building software products. That's what you do here at SCP. And you've been a big follower of our guest for quite a while. I'm going to kick the intro over to you for our guest. Today, we interviewed Bob Mesta, who is, I consider, kind of a, a giant in the, the product thinking space. He has had a very interesting career and done a lot of things. I think he's worked on over 3,500 products, everything from, you know, the Snickers bar to, I think, like the Patriot missile. So wow. It's been like a, There's a, a range. Yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> some range there. I was particularly excited about the show because I've been wanting to connect with Bob for a while. I've followed and listened to everything I can get my hands on that he's done. And I would say, at least for me personally, I can think back years ago to when I first, as an engineer, kind of got into design and thinking about user experience. And that was kind of a aha light bulb moment for me where I started to see things that I didn't notice before. Like, you know, why is that button there? Or why would somebody design it like this? So it was kind of a switch moment for me on just being cognizant of things that I wasn't before. And after following Bob and really learning about jobs to be done primarily, it really kind of did the same light bulb moment for me and how I think about product, how I talk to people, what I'm looking for. I was excited to get some of Bob's perspective. I'm also excited that he's got a new book coming out, uh, which is part of the, the lead up to the show as we talked to him a little bit about the book that he's got coming out. And this book is focused on learning how to build. He interned with Dr. Deming and Dr. Taguchi, and he talks a lot in the, his book about his mentors and all the things he's learned about them. Through all these different products that he's built over the years, part of what the book does is distill down what he's learned from all these people in the industry that are kind of the best innovators and what are the patterns that he's seen. And a lot of it is counterintuitive. It's yeah. counter to the things that we've learned in school. It's counter to the things that we may think that typically get rewarded or get time. And jobs to be done, uh, surprisingly enough, is I would say a subset of what he talks about in yeah. the book. So yeah. there's a lot more to learn. If you just think of Bob and think about jobs to be done, there's so much more behind it to really get the impact that you're looking for. Well, I love how he described the book as being him paying homage to his mentors yeah. and the people that really poured into him and him wanting to share what he's learned through that. And then also that this is not the end-all be-all of philosophies and tools and techniques and how to build software products. It's a few more arrows in your quiver and the humility behind that. I love that. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Bob. We talked about a broad set of subjects. I can't even really begin to synthesize that. So really just thankful that he was able to join us and appreciate you, Dave, for joining me for this journey. I'm sure you enjoyed our convo with him very much. Yep. My pleasure. Well, my friend, let's dive right in. Hope you all enjoy. I'm glad we finally were able to connect up and uh, more than happy to figure out how to help. Did you read the book? Did I give you the book? 
Have you seen the book or no? So I just finished it a couple days ago. Oh, good. Perfect. You're going to tell me your take. We can do it live if we're on the recording if you want. I can wait till that. Ooh, that's a great intro. What'd you think of Bob's new book? It connected the dots for a lot of things that I had been hearing, just kind of being a, a longtime Bob follower, <laughs> so to speak. So I like to listen or read to about anything that Bob comes out with. So I learned a lot of the different things. What was interesting to me was I found these kind of obscure YouTube videos uh, about the red line, green line oh, yeah, development yeah. method. I think it was like eight years ago. And so I'm one of the few people that have actually watched that on YouTube. And I found that really interesting. And I've always thought that that seemed to be, to me, a common thread that would kind of connect all of the jobs, kind of mental model thinking together. And so as I heard you a year or so ago, starting to talk about the five skills of innovator, I had kept thinking about that stuff. And I'm like, oh, I really want to learn more about the red line, green line stuff, and maybe more about the Taguchi methods and some of the other things that maybe you haven't talked about as much in other podcasts and things that I've listened to. And like, so as soon as I started to read the book, you like started off with that. I'm like, yep, (laughs) this is going exactly where I was hoping. If you reflect into shape up, like uh, what I would say is I think of shape up as the the modern version of the red line, green line. It's very similar in terms of uh, intent and behavior, but it's got better language than what I learned in the I'll say the 80s and 90s, as I learned it kind of raw from Japan and some other people about kind of learning some of those methods and tools. So was, the book is really about making sure I pay homage to my, my mentors, right? I don't know if you can see, but that's a picture of all, uh, all four of them. You got to realize as a dyslexic, almost illiterate kid at 18 and told that I was going to be a baggage handler at the airport and then kind of reflect back and go, boy, I've worked on 3,500 products and I've helped all these different companies and I've started my own, like like I never would have figured out how I got there. And so part of it is to pay homage because they're past and I feel like their knowledge should be passed on. And at the same time to realize, for people to realize how important mentors are, but also these skills, which I don't feel people are teaching anywhere at this point. It's like the missing secrets of kind of really good entrepreneurship and innovation. So that was really kind of that purpose behind the book. And it was a really fun to write. And to be honest, the book has been done for, I want to say, almost a year. But the graphics are the things I spent so much time on because it's like I wanted to make... For me, I'm a visual person. And it was like I wanted to make sure they matched and they made sense. And I, so I, I took almost a year to do all the graphics. I love that. You know, I have not followed you for nearly as long as Dave has. So I was kind of coming into this... I've been in tech, I've been in product development for maybe 15, 17 years, give or take. You know, I've been exposed to and used a broad range of tools and techniques. I found it refreshing that you talked about this isn't the prescription. This isn't the golden goose of product development. It's just a tool, or I think you use the analogy, an arrow in your quiver. And I absolutely love the humility in that. Well, it's it's true. You know, the book has been around for a while. You've also obviously written other books. Demand Side Sales was one that I went back and uh, read a little bit about. I'm curious, why do you think this was important to do now? What's relevant today that you think was good and important to get this out? It's more of a selfish reason than anything else. Part of this is to realize that as I'm 57 and I'm starting to kind of figure out what I want to do when I grow up kind of thing. And I feel like I've worked on a lot of products and I've worked on a lot of things. And so now it's time to kind of pay back or pay it forward, if you will. There's a mechanics problem to this too, which is uh, I have four children. They're all gone. I'm an empty nester. And part of this started with, oh my God, I got to clean out my attic or clean out my third floor, which is where I started all my companies. And I have 
832 volumes of notebooks from when I was all the way back to, uh, you know, the paint experiment was in there and all that stuff. And so I'm like, what do I do with all these notebooks? And so I spent a week just kind of turning through them and remembering stuff and going like, what do I do with this? And so part of it was the clean out. I think the other part is that as I've been helping teams more and more, and I do, I teach at Northwestern now, and I help out Techstars and Y Combinator and different programs like that. And I was like, what's missing? And so the mental game I went through was, I was literally almost a blank canvas. I had curiosity, which was, I think that was very key as having me learn all these things. But then when I take like the top 20 people I've worked with who are just amazing innovators, and I go, what could they do that nobody else could do? I started to see the five skills kind of coalesce. And I just started to realize like, okay, this is one of those things where everybody's talking about, you know, A-B testing and boy, you got to test more. That's not what I learned is testing. I got to bring that back. And then you start to realize when I talked with people who are really good at testing, you start to realize, no, they're prototyping to learn. They're not actually testing to verify. And you start to realize that language. And so part of this is to realize that as I try to give language to people, and I would say I've been coaching for so long right now that I realize I don't want to repeat myself. And so I'm trying to give people almost the primer to figure out how to interact in a better way. So part of it is selfish. I think the other part, though, is that that I feel like a lot of the language that Deming and Taguchi and Dr. Moore and Clay would use is, is getting dated. And so people say, oh, I know disruption theory, and I know this, and I know that, or I know systems thinking, right? And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, but you don't know systems thinking how I was taught systems thinking. So part of it was being able to kind of differentiate it from the common knowledge to very, very specific of empathetic perspective, not just having perspective or seeing it from other people's view, but the notion of being able to see it from multiple things and connect dots and that kind of stuff. I just felt like those were really important things to bring up to people or to make aware. And again, make it easier so I could actually have more impact. There's ego in this. I would say I try to be as humble as I can, but for the most part, if I was truly humble, I wouldn't have done it at all. That's fair. We all have ego. Well, I mean, I think it's good to have an intent to share, right? I mean, your mentors have had a big impact on you. And I think that that's a noble thing to try to pass on the knowledge that you've learned to as many other people as you can. The third thing, though, is that I found a process where I can write a book where I don't actually have to write. And what I mean by that is that this book was written in 10 two-hour sessions with somebody who was a writer who loves to write, but doesn't have topics. And so as a collaboration, we basically, I hired them to basically help me write this book. And it's called Scribe Media. They helped me do the last three books, four books. Usually, I always have to find somebody else to be the writer. So I usually am a co-author on it with somebody else. But this allowed me to kind of write a book the way I wanted to write a book or get it out the way. I, it's harder, but like I, I, it just, it allows me to actually have that freedom to, when you read it, it reads like I talk because that's what I did. <laughs> I love that. As somebody that is an external processor, I have a hard time sitting down and typing or writing. I have to verbalize it. So what we do is we spend the first week just framing, who's this for? What are they struggling with? What is the outcomes that they're seeking? What does progress look like? What other things are they reaching for? And then ultimately we break that from like almost a beginning to end view. And then we talk about then what are the systems we need to put in place which turn out to be chapters? And then we take each chapter and break it down into a system to say, like, what is the function of this chapter? And then ultimately, what progress, like, how does that feed the next system? And so we use all of the thinking in the book to write the book. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting in the book, you talk a little bit about that process and describe how it works. Maybe to help our audience, one of the things I thought that was good that maybe could help them 
thinking about as they're picking up. So if somebody's going to pick up this book, I think at the end you described, was it four different jobs for who the book was targeting? Can you speak to those just a little bit? So part of it is, is I think it gets back to what are you struggling with? And again, the fundamental premise of jobs to be done is that people just don't randomly buy things. There's causal mechanisms in their lives. So I went off and did research to figure out why do people buy similar books to this and then basically talk through kind of the context that people are in wrapped around it. The four different kind of situations, and I don't remember them off sequence. I was the first one, I think, which was essentially the continuous learner. <laughs> I didn't have a specific work struggle as bringing me to it. It was more of just like, I'm already on this thread of being into this stuff. So the struggle you have is you have time. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote another book called Choosing College. That was it. One of the jobs there is that you'd say it's like a lifelong learner kind of situation, but it's really this aspect of like, I have time. I like to see things from different perspectives and I want to use it to help me reflect on what I want to, like the progress I want to make, but it, I don't have a very pressing problem. It's more about kind of filling my repertoire of stuff I like to do. And so what was the first one? First one was, you know, help me extend myself so I can do better at work. But there's some other ones that help me take a deep dive in an area where I'm lacking. What happens when you learn them, you start to realize the interesting part is these all play with each other, these five skills. You know, it's empathetic perspective, uncovering demand, causal structures, cause and effect, if you will, and then prototyping to learn and then identifying managing trade-offs. And as you go through it, you start to realize, boy, I know these two, but I don't know how to do the prototyping to learn. Or, you know, I don't frame trade-offs. I try to optimize all the time. It's like, okay, I need to dive deep into it. And so this book is really designed to kind of help you kind of round out the portfolio of those skills and that it's more about having the set of them than just being good at any one of them per se. The other job was really around an organization. So there's a lot of times where people will know this stuff. So I'm working with a couple of organizations now where it's like the core team knows this, but they want to extend this thinking beyond the team. And so this was about how do we actually build something where we can give it to either onboard new people coming to the team or getting HR or finance or other people in the extended team to realize these are the kinds of things we're doing when we're innovating. And then the last one is really about those people who are, I'd say, the heart and soul of, to me, the world, the small business owner, the startup, the people who run day-to-day -day things, and that they usually spend more time working in the business than on the business. And can I give them small little things they can do to help work on the business to make it better? And so that's really kind of the way that we literally wrote with those intentions in mind as we wrote the entire book. I love that. The beginning... I'll say parable or story that you talked through, like your first internship, the way that you defined the difference between an inventor and an innovator, I loved. I never thought about it that way. I've often used language like the difference between creativity and ingenuity. I would consider myself to have a high degree of ingenuity. I don't create anything. I'm terrible at creating things, but I'm pretty good, I think, sometimes at poking at something that exists and seeing a way that it might be able to be better. And that's kind of how I think about the things differently. Yeah. Well, this is where I get into conversation with people say, well, you know, if we can't patent it, it's not good. Right. <laughs> so you get people who wanted to create new things and they thought engineering was all about patents. And you, we all know the people who have like a thousand patents or like, you know, a lot of patents. And it's like, and they're really, really smart, but they're not innovators. They're inventors. They obsess almost like the academic realm. So Dr. Deguchi always used to talk about the difference between a scientist and an engineer. And he said, he would always say, just, you need to remember, you're not a scientist. I'm like, no, but I'm using all the scientific principles here. Yeah, but a scientist's job is to describe a phenomenon that we have never seen before. 
and how to utilize the phenomenon. There is no trade-offs in science. It's just truth. And as an engineer, you actually have to be a, not only a scientist, but you also have to be an economist and a psychologist at the same time. Because there's trade-offs and there's context and there's outcomes and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And so the thing that might make most scientific sense might not make the best economic sense. And so this is where we have to realize that we are applied scientists and that as we build things, we have to actually have all three of those worlds in our mind as we go through this. And most inventors are more like scientists and artists where they feel like it's about creating something unique. It's a lot more ego-driven where you find an innovator is actually way more about helping others, building it for others. By the way, that's where I can tell a really good entrepreneur is when they're more worried about the customer or the people that work for them than the money they're going to make. The money will come, but I got to be able to create value on the demand side, which is progress. And I got to create value on the supply side, which is return on investment. And ultimately, those are the things that if they're worried about those two sides, then they're almost always successful. And when you look at repeat entrepreneurs, their whole world is about by the time they're like a third time over, they're just powerhouses because they realize like, it's not about the money at all. It's all about helping people on both sides of the world. And you start to realize like, they're just so fun to work with. So fun. It's almost like wrapping a business around a passion versus building a business because you see an opportunity, but you have no relevant experience or passion behind it. I love that. So this is my seventh startup. And I got it to a point where I had almost 50 people and I hated it. And so what I did is I just, I cut it back to five people and realized the notion to grow was somebody else's notion because I ended up managing people. I ended up doing like, and I I love to build shit. I'm a builder. And so part of this is like, okay, but I don't have time to build stuff. Like I found myself going home and doing stuff. And I'm like, it's my business. Why am I doing this? By cutting it back, I have people that I've worked with for sometimes 20 years or more. And it's a very small team. We're all peers. The money is not what it's about. It's like, in the end, we share the wealth and the entire thing. It's not this notion of building something and making it big. It's about helping people. That's kind of the essence of the Rewired Group is the, the firm that I run now. And that's how we run it. The other part is that I want everybody to make progress. I have a somebody who works with me, Catherine, and we basically have an agreement that she has a two-year window. And after two years, she's going to have to go somewhere. And my job is to help her to go figure out what does progress look like for her. And she has to help me fill backfill her position. And then there's no raises. There's no positions. There's no like, this is what you're going to make. It's going to be two years. This is what you're going to learn. And then at the end of two years, we can say you want to double down for another two years. We might talk about a raise then, but otherwise we're going to help you go find a job. So every client we work with is like, do you want to go work for them? Do you want to go work for them? And she's honing and refining what she's getting from working here, but she's also starting to imagine the future. That to me is just awesome. That's how I think every company should run. I love that. Hey, I love you talked a little bit about that in the book about the jobs about employing someone and the jobs that the employee has versus the employee and kind of when you can tell somebody is ready to make a switch there. <laughs> so I've been studying for five years now and I'm writing a book with Michael Horn and Ethan Bernstein on this is called Hire Your Next Job. The frame is that most employees hire companies versus companies hiring employees. And you start to realize like as the side gig has come up and people can do multiple things, you start to realize people who work have way more flexibility than they used to. And this whole notion of having one job or working for one company is just kind of almost an absurd notion. Having people and studying this, the main thing is I saw most people just running from their previous job to any new job they could get. 
And what you saw is the majority of people who ran from one job and just took the next first job is they end up in either in a similar or worse situation than they were before because they still don't know what they want. It's a book about helping you understand the progress you want to make, what you're good at, what you suck at, and how to leverage your strengths and do more work that gives you energy and joy and reducing the amount of work that just sucks the life out of you. That's the next one. It's trying to be as practical as possible. And I wrote it for kind of different levels. And part of me says there's another book for each chapter, right? There's an empathetic book. There's probably a prototyping to learn book. But this is just kind of building that foundation and getting it out. One of the things I thought was interesting in the book was, I guess I've been thinking about this for a while as well, is the kind of this disconnect between what people are taught in school or just in general, what we think people are telling us how we should be entrepreneurs or how we should be an engineer or various other things. And I thought a lot of the book was poking it. This, you know, a lot of that, there's different ways to look at it. And I thought you had some pretty unique perspectives. So I was curious to hear more about that. But also, if I kind of get it, if I'm in the enlightened Bob <laughs> kind of space, using language from kind of chapter summaries in the book, how would I convince somebody else or kind of get somebody else to be able to see that this different perspective is worth approaching it or trying it from? Because I think some of the people I've seen that are applying jobs things or that are doing product development, unless you're at the top or have a certain level of authority, you're kind of inside the box. So is there a way to kind of apply this from inside the box outward to either yourself, your team? Like, how does that work? So I always talk about there's two ways to to make it work. One is from the top down. That requires actually more time because it's about getting everybody's buy-in. The other way is from the bottom up. And so a lot of times what will happen is people will take... And so I have a couple of companies where we've used this book for two teams of you know 20 teams. And we just say like, we're going to let this team start to use and apply some of these tools as they frame out the project and do it. And we let the kind of let the results speak for themselves. What's interesting is most people don't say they're going to do it any differently. They just agree like, here's the project, here's the outcome, here's the resources I have. All right, now let's go about it a different way. And so it's one of those things where, and that's very similar to how what ShapeUp is doing is you find people are, are applying ShapeUp in a very small way. Then when the results start to happen, people go like, what are you doing? Why are you doing, like, help me understand what you're, what's going on. And so it's that more viral notion than the mandatory or the let's change the entire process and system view. It's one of the reasons why I didn't write it as a process book, because I think people will bastardize process. The biggest difference to me when I worked between Japan and here is Japan would think about process as the boundaries by which I can innovate. The process is what I'm responsible for and anything inside that I can do. Everything else outside, I have to actually either specify or figure out how to become robust to. Where here, we write processes so people don't have to think. And it's the exact opposite in Japan. They write processes so you can think deeper. And so that's really where I think that notion kind of comes from. First part of your question though about the entrepreneurship, I'm not sure you have to convince anybody of anything besides what they're doing is not working. That's the first thing. If they can't figure out that if it's working, they don't need to change. There's no struggling moment. And to be honest, I've had companies where I work and they say that, yeah, this is a real struggle for people. And they go like, I don't care. Like, it's not a struggle for me. And like, if they have to work more hours, don't care. Like, just get it done. And so like, it's a struggling moment for one, but not for the other. The hard question I get most of the time though, is like, somebody asked me the question, like, when did you decide you wanted to be an entrepreneur? 
to be honest, it's one of those things where it wasn't even an option when I was a kid. Like nobody thought about being an entrepreneur. But the reason why I ended up becoming an entrepreneur is because I couldn't get a job. So I was lucky enough that because I was dyslexic and when I got that, it was the fact is like I could never walk in the door through HR ever again because my resume was always had typos. I never said the right words. You know, I could never even get past the original filters. And so what happens is I had to become an entrepreneur because I had four kids and I had to put food on the table. And so part of it was, is I didn't realize that I worked for Ford for seven years and I got fired. And when I got fired, it was like, okay, now I got to go do my own thing. You talked about forcing things to break before they happen naturally. So go back to your, maybe your first or second or third in plus one there, because there's been a lot. Early company, early stage CEO. How do you do that? How do you force some of these things to happen? What are some of the tips and tricks to making that work? I'll give you a very recent one that I'm doing right now, which is so I'm building a process to help people basically reflect and learn and take into account what does progress mean for them. I started the process by, and I've helped over a thousand people in the last about 18 months. The first time I did it, I did it with five people, one on one, two times a week for nine weeks, an hour a session. So it was a lot of work. We learned what worked, we learned what didn't work. And then we built a prototype and we took uh, about 20, 30 people through the same process in the same time frame. And then in December, I did two prototypes that were, one was three weeks and one was six weeks. And what happened is the one in three weeks, I had less than 25% of the people finish it. And the intent was, where's the limit by which people can actually do make this work? Part of it was, is being able to take into account. And, and as I'm prototyping, I'm like, where does it break? What part of the process breaks? Can I fix that part of the process so we can do it faster? And what I started to learn is that if I do it too fast, they actually don't get the richness of the reflective time. And so you actually need to have it be six weeks long. But the intent was to go in to break it. What's so interesting is like Catherine was talking to me, she's like, like why are we doing this? We know people are going to fail. Like, I want to know where 50% fail. Taguchi would talk about the LD50 point, lethal dose. It's where 50% of the people can't do it. It's like, okay. So that's the case. Then I'm going to put a safety factor on it. And then we're going to try it again. And, and that's how we end up prototyping to learn how to make that process be more and more effective and available to more people. Because when you do it too fast, most people don't have the time resources to do that as opposed to the money resources. The other example I have is uh, one of the assignments I had very early on was to help Ford's transmissions that we were going from, I think it was 50 or 60,000 miles to 100,000 mile warranty. And they gave us less than a year to figure that out. That doesn't sound like a long enough time. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and the thing is, everybody's like, well, we, got, we can't test. We can do this. So what we did is we found ways to actually cause the transmission to fail. So we'd heat it up. We'd cool it down. We'd throw iron filings into it. All the stuff that you'd get when it would wear. And we built testing that allowed us to actually understand the failure point. And then as we did design, we could actually test things in 25, 30 days that allowed us to actually understand failure points and where they would come and how to fix them that got us to the 100,000. But it was one of those things where we had to figure out how to make it fail faster and earlier and then take reference points to say, if I make these changes, how do I make it less susceptible to filings? How do I make it less susceptible to warm and cold? How do I make it less? And all those things then made it basically a better transmission. But I had to think about it of causing it to fail first as opposed to how to make it work. SEP, the company that Dave and I work for, we're a product development consultancy. We help build other people's products. I'm kind of curious, do you have much experience 
don't say coaching, it's a broad word, but working with consultancies versus product companies. And what's been your experience and advice around applying this thinking, this arrow, this tool in our world versus directly into a product company? So there's a couple of things is that when you look at the consultancy world, one is they don't really invest in methods or tools. They license very little. And so part of this is that you invent your own methods that work and you actually have your own set of tools that work. And so you're a collector of tools. They have to fit to your paradigm and world. And so what I would say is that there's a lot of people who will pick up this book and if they're in that world, they're going to use this as another arrow in the quiver. And so it's more or less learning the set of tools that you need. And so part of this is to realize like at some point, what are those tools that you need everybody to know or ways in which to work around it. And so to me, whether it's a service organization or a product organization, these are the thinking tools you need to actually wrap around your services. And so part of this is to then how does it meld into it? But what I would say is there are many people who do jobs to be done, but nobody who does it like me, though I've tried to help people do that, you find that they need to put their own slant on it because they want to be differentiated by it. So they won't do jobs my way. And so I'm in the middle of building software. Ryan and I are building some software around that. And we have something called Treehouse to try to standardize the approach to actually make it easier for both consultants, marketing agencies, the service organizations to replicate kind of what we do. A tool that has an opinion, basically. Yeah. So for example, we're Ryan and I have already talked about how we build tools like the design of experiments and being able to teach people how to do design experiments and analyze the data. And by building the software of how they have to think about the information and put it in, that will actually then give them access to the tool. So they don't have to learn all this complicated statistics. They don't have to learn about uh, designed experiments. But if we actually help them think it through and then give them the frame to do it, then they can use it as a method. And then we can actually have many other people use it as opposed to having to learn so much specialized knowledge just to get there. Does that kind of help them dig into the concept of a function versus a problem? Because that seems to be a sticking point, I think, for a lot of people as they focus you know, one linear problem after another versus the, this whole function concept that you've talked about. So this gets back to getting people perspective on it. And the hardest part is I think people are, especially engineers, we are taught to solve problems. We are given problem sets. Everything was a problem and everything was set up. And then we're taught how to frame problems, but we don't actually spend the time to learn the functions of things and how things work or how we want to make things work. And so this is where I think good engineers have the ability to put things together, where most engineering is taught as a way to take things apart. And so at least the engineering when I was in school was all about kind of the disassembly and the breaking of something down into its core elements, as opposed to understanding how to assemble something and to do something bigger. I think it gets back to that. But I think understanding function is the most important thing, because if I just study problems, like if I try to run experiments, this happened very early on, the, the easiest thing to do is if you want to reduce variation, slow down the line. If you want to reduce variation to zero, don't make it. (laughs) right but that's not an option and so this is where you start to realize that so taguchi had a metric he would call the signal to noise ratio we would do it for chocolate chip cookies and we'd do it for transmissions he figured out the way in which to talk about the quality of something is not only how well it does it but then the variation around it and that you want to be able to reduce variation but also hit the target and ultimately that was what he won the deming prize in japan for was the ability to articulate this notion of that when there's any variation, there is loss to somebody somewhere in the, in the value chain. I love how so much of this book talks about your mentors 
you started with this story around these three or four individuals and the way that they've influenced you is laced through the book. Getting a little meta about that, it sounds like you kind of lucked into that opportunity to some degree at Ford, and then you really leaned into it. My mom had a very interesting take on this because I came home after meeting Dr. Deming. He's like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to... We're going to Japan. I'll need you to go to Japan like June 15th or whatever. And I had to go like, Mom, I need a, a ticket to Japan. And she'd go like, why are you going to Japan? <laughs> After I had been doing it for a while, my mom had some friends who basically had said, boy, your son is so lucky. He's like, he had met the right people at the right time. And, and I would always agree with that. My mom would say, no, many people have met Dr. Deming. Many people have sat down to him, but you asked him 52 questions in 22 minutes and you actually knew how to talk to him and you knew these kinds of things. So as much as you might've had the right opportunity, you knew how to take advantage of that opportunity where most people expect the opportunity to basically be like winning the lottery. And you have to work for opportunities. And the fact, I won't say that I'm not lucky. I, I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the world, but if I rely on luck, then I just wait. Waiting is actually the greatest of all paradoxes because time is both, it's free and it's the most precious of all resources we have. And so what else is free and priceless at the same time? Time. And so this is where you have to realize like you might be lucky, but you also have to be skillful to be ready to take advantage of the luck when it shows up. Because my belief is we all have luck in front of us every day and we don't even know it. In my household, luck is a four-letter word and it's a bad one. Do you have any advice that you give young folks in their careers around, that's going to sound horrible, but capitalizing on those opportunities or leaning into those opportunities? First of all, why would that be awful? The thing is, is you have to realize opportunities are created because people need help. The reality is, is that what happens is we keep thinking we're imposing. Like I keep thinking about like trying to look at it through Deming's eyes. It's like, why would he take a 19-year-old kid and offer him these things what, if he didn't see something to go like, God, I'm so sick of all these people yelling at me and telling me I'm doing the wrong thing. I can actually start fresh with this kid and help. Like, and you start to realize, like, I helped him as much as he helped me. And part of it is I didn't want to let him down. So part of it is to look at the whole situation, empathetically take a step back and look at it. And you realize opportunities are always about helping others. And you can say that, that at some point it's about making money. But if an opportunity is making money, but it's usually then people paying you for something that they have a problem with, you're helping people. <laughs> The metric that I've adopted for my life is very similar to what Clay's is, is I'm not worried about the size of my bank account. I'm worried about the number of people I helped. At the end of the day, if I can help as many people as possible, I've lived a full and very, very useful life. The other thing is that I've told my children that they're not going to get an inheritance. They might get a little bit, but any extra money I have, the thing that I tried to explain to my children is the greatest joy I had was making money. And making money means I'm helping people. And then what I do is I turn around and take that money and go help people with the money. And so the worst thing I can do is give my kids a bunch of money because then they actually don't start out and get the joy of learning how to be productive and learning how to actually add value and learning how to make trade-offs. When you have too much money, you make stupid decisions. This is why like startups, they'll go raise money. I'm like, don't raise too much because then you end up having to spend it. And it's not the right stuff to spend it on. I mean, we've all seen it, right? Well, yeah, there's a, a repeat founder that just got another $350 million after blundering, what, $4 billion? But this is where you have to take the time to really understand. And again, like I said, I'm 57. You start to reflect on what's life and what do you really want to do and how do you measure your life and how, what, you know, what, what makes it a fulfilling life? You start to, one, you realize that everybody's different. What I believe and what you believe is different and it's fine. That's part of what I think America is built on, right? This notion of, we have that freedom. But at the same time, 
you have to realize that a lot of times we're actually setting our goals based on what other people perceive us as opposed to what we want to be. These tools that in the book and these kind of underlying philosophy of learning about what you're good at, learning the skills to add value, learning the skills. I taught these skills to a finance team and it blew them away. Like the whole notion of like, okay, I want you to think about what's it like to create a budget. They have the process. I'm like, no, empathetically and emotionally, what's it like to be on the other side of the budget? Because whatever I put down, you will come after me if I'm too low or too high. And so they're gaming it. And they're like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) they just don't understand. So when you start and then prototype, he's like, how do you prototype? It's like, they don't understand prototyping at all. I'm like, well, if you don't know, how do you learn? And we, well, we learn from mistakes. I'm like, that's prototyping. (laughs) Everybody should be able to learn these skills. And again, what I would say is these are learned skills. These are not like, I wasn't born an entrepreneur. I wasn't born an innovator. I believe these are skills that you learn along the way and that anybody can be an entrepreneur given the fact that they want to be able to help people enough. Part of what you've touched on, you're a very curious person. I've heard you say that multiple times. And, um, and I know like when you go into doing jobs to be done interviews, you say that you, you, know, you clear your mind. That's the first thing you do when you go into an interview. So one of the things I'm really interested in is learning how to ask better questions. And I would be curious of your advice after you've cleared your mind and you start to hear somebody's story doing these interviews. How do you adjust in real time to kind of know where to dig? And like, are there any kind of let's say, verbal tricks that you use to make sure that you're phrasing things the right way to kind of open things up or any other tools that would help in that space? So this is why empathetic perspective is so important is that I almost am taking the perspective of I'm the understudy to them. And though they might have bought a new car or they might have downloaded this new app, I have no idea why they did it. And I can have hypotheses around it. Like this is where I actually believe hypothesis building and testing is a wrong place to start. And this is where most of us all start is what's your hypothesis? Okay, let's test it. And my thing is, is, is I always think of like jobs as that hypothesis building research, which is like, I have no idea. And so part of this is to say like, as I'm playing this out, it's like, okay, this doesn't make sense. And what happens is a lot of people try to make sense of it. And what I do is I make them make sense for it for me because I'm almost always wrong when I assume like, oh, when they say easy, they mean this easy because of that. It's like, what kind of easy are we talking about? Easy to open, easy to install, easy to train others, easy to actually convert the data. Like there's a lot of easies and then bam, they'll, they'll let you know. But a lot of times people speak in this as a concept called the layers of language. There's three layers. The first layer is this pablum layer where people, they say stuff, but they actually don't actually know what they're saying. They're saying stuff just to kind of communicate. This is where they say, oh, I want it to be easy. Or my favorite is I interview people around, like uh, they bought a Tesla and say, oh, I want to, I'm really worried about the environment, what's going on with the environment. I'm like, okay, great. So tell me two other things you did this week about the environment. Nothing. And you start to realize, like, did you really get it for that? Because if that's the only thing you're doing, I'm pretty sure that that's not like, if, if you told me you were doing recycling and you're doing gardening and you're doing it like, okay, I get it. It's like, this is aligning with your values. But you start to realize is there are people who talk and literally say that they want to save the earth. And ultimately, this is the only thing that they've done. Well, that's not the reason why you bought the Tesla. You either didn't want to look bad or the fact is you like the HOV lane and you like to not have to stop for gas. And so part of this is trying to see the world through their eyes and through their ears and through what they see, and what they feel. Most of the time, it's like, a, like I said, I'm studying them like a theater major trying to understand a role. And so when I get to the table to talk about product, I've got their role in my body and I can literally talk about like, here's how they would think about, 
I want to actually make the decisions like they would make decisions, not like how I would make decisions. And too many people try to force their view on top of somebody else's view. That's what a survey does. A survey is literally you're giving them your language to answer your questions from their perspective. And half the time, they don't even know what half the words are that you wrote. It's a really good point. Bob, I feel like we could talk about this for the rest of the day, and I would still be scratching the surface. I appreciate you so much. I know Dave has, has helped me learn a lot about your background and the things that you've written. I actually uh, picked up your demand side sales book that I'm going to go. I'm going to go read after this. I'm excited to dive into that one. I appreciate your time so much, and uh, thank you for spending time with us. I'm excited about the book launch and everything else that you've got going on. I love your message, not only on the technical side and helping companies, but really more importantly, the people side of things. I feel like there's not enough people talking about this. And it's so important. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. And you see the passion I have. I feel like if I'm one person who's made it through. There's a hundred, a thousand, a million people like me who haven't been able to figure it out. And what I'm trying to do is make sure that they have at least the breadcrumbs to figure out for themselves. But at the same time, hopefully it'll help some people along the way. Well, I hope we get to do this again, actually, because I want to talk more about that. I think that's a phenomenal point. I would love for you to read Demand Side Sales. I got it right here. And then let's talk about what you take out of that. Because let's be clear, most people hate selling. But when you reframe it as helping people make progress, all of a sudden, a teacher loves to sell because they're helping the student make progress. And you start to realize that if I can actually help the organization realize that my job is to help other people make progress, you're selling all the time, but you don't feel icky about it. It is that icky feeling, I think. I'm very interested to hear your view on that. Well, when I finish it, we will give you a ring. <laughs> we'll have a full off a follow-up. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Thank you. Thanks. 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 